0: Hey, uh, we are in the third week of a series that we've called, What is the Bible? And as I've noted for the past couple weeks, I believe this is some of the most important material we've ever tackled as a community. Uh, the Bible has shaped religious faith and practice for countless people for literally thousands of years. Nevertheless, many of us have never stopped to ask the question, what is the Bible? And it really is a critical question for a really great reason. If you've ever tried to read the Bible, you, you're going to follow exactly what I'm saying. Put it up on the screen. It goes like this. Um, though the Bible looks like a book, like it comes, you know, bound together and you can put it on the shelf right next to Harry Potter or whatever your thing, right? Um, it doesn't exactly read like a book. And there's a good reason for that. It's not exactly a book. It's in fact a collection of books. Uh, Scholars tell us 66 books by around 40 authors written over 1,500 years on three continents. They were real people in real places with real struggles, fears, hopes, and dreams. The culture in which they lived, the religious, the political influences all show up in the way they tell us the story of God. And so that's sort of what the Bible is. And with our time today, I want to take a unique angle on talking about the Bible and continue a conversation that we actually began last week. Uh, If you weren't with us, let me catch you up. Last week, we learned that the Bible um, is organized around covenants. And just so we're all on the same page, a covenant is an agreement that outlines the terms of a relationship. And so in the Bible, uh, the covenants talk about the relationship between God and and people. They tell people what they should do for God and identify what God will do for people. And you're actually, even if you're not aware of it, you're already familiar with the two most famous covenants in the Bible. There are more, but uh, the big ones are the Old Covenant or Old Testament and the New Covenant or the New Testament. And the Old Testament outlines the terms of relationship between God and ancient Israel, and the New Testament outlines the terms of relationship between God and the world. And so last week, we noted that when reading the Bible, it's imperative to know where you are in the story and the covenant under which the story takes place. If you don't, the Bible can be very confusing. Uh, A few of us this week were doing our Bible studies, and we came upon that wonderful passage in Leviticus that talks about rebellious children should be stoned. Maybe you've read that one. And and it was like snow day number 954. (laughs) And because of my proper theology, I did not stone my children, but I was tempted, right? Uh, and so, yeah, um, it's important to know, and, and the Bible really can be very confusing. Um, and and I've, when I was in Israel a few weeks back, planning a trip to take a bunch of you back next year, which is another story for another day, but um, I was at a restaurant in the city of Old Jerusalem, and our guide said something that was so brilliant on this topic. I wrote it on a napkin, and it became our big idea for today. Here's what he said. He said, He said, though all of the Bible was written for you, and he was speaking to me, he said, "Um, not all of the Bible was written to you. It wasn't originally addressed to you. He said, it's almost like with parts of the Bible, you're reading someone else's mail, But he said there certainly are parts that are to you, and it's imperative we know which parts are written to us because that clears up a lot of frustration that has characterized the faith journey of Jesus' followers for a long time and even left people confused about how God wants to relate to them. And so what I want to do with our time today is show you that the covenant confusion has been a part of the church since the very beginning. I want to show you what happened when Jesus' first followers, those first 12 disciples, who, by the way, were all Jewish and grew up under the old covenant, had to embrace a new covenant and lead a church founded by Jesus on a new covenant. It fundamentally changed the way they were going to relate to God. Uh, Just spoiler alert before we go there, it didn't go particularly well, and there's a lesson in that for all of us. Uh, In fact, instead of embracing the new Jesus came to unleash on the world, his first followers initially tried to blend the old with the new. And the consequences to that blending, both to them back then and for us today, are nothing short of tragic. Let me show you what I mean. So after his resurrection, Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples. And during that time, he sort of reteaches them everything he had already taught them. Because when someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off and then starts talking to you, you pay attention, right? And so all of a sudden, light bulbs were going on, and they were like, oh, that's what he meant by that. And then after spending 40 days with them, sort of reminding them of his teachings, he gives them what's become known as the Great Commission, He commissions them and sends them on a mission that will carry them for the rest of their lives. And Matthew, who was one of the original 12, records Jesus' words for us in his account of Jesus' life. Here's what he says. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples, go and make Jesus followers of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And just notice with me that he wants it, he wants them to take his invitation, his new covenant, globally. All nations. Okay, he continues. He says, And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, if you grew up in church like me, it's very possible that you memorized the Great Commission at some point. I know. I mean, I did. Um, and there was some, something in here that is easy to miss because it's something Jesus doesn't say, but his first followers would have caught it immediately. Because in Jesus' words, obey everything I have commanded you, there is no mention of Moses. There's no mention of the Old Testament law. Instead, Jesus instructs his followers to center their teaching on his commandments. And again, Jesus is speaking. He's back from the dead. I think they smiled and nodded. And then when Jesus ascended to heaven, they had a conversation. Like, we've been under the old covenant our whole lives. We've oriented our lives around all sorts of things that God told our ancestors to do. And as we take this thing forward, Jesus is saying, everything I have commanded you, what do we do? What do we do with Moses? And so I believe the first Christians had clarity on the global nature of what they were trying to do, but they were a little fuzzy when it came to the old covenant, at least at first. Nonetheless, uh, these disciples who were given a global mission wanted to do what we all want to do, stay comfortable, and so they actually go back to the city of Jerusalem, the city where Jesus was crucified and resurrected, and they begin to tell people about Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. And what that meant is that thousands and thousands of Jewish people, both who lived in Jerusalem and who were visiting Jerusalem, heard about Jesus and embraced him as their savior, as their messiah. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that the early church took on a uniquely Jewish flavor. It was made up of all Jewish people. And the old covenant practices began to infringe on the new. And so something had to be done. The disciples were a little fuzzy on it, but Jesus had total clarity. And so as you continue to read the book of Acts in the New Testament, it tells us about the actions of the first followers of Jesus, you see that God recruits Well, the most unlikely candidate to take his message to the world. He approaches a guy by the name of Paul. And if you're familiar with Paul, you know that Paul was a professional Jewish religious person. He was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees in the ancient world, their full-time job was to be good. And they define good based on the old covenant commands. And when Paul walks onto the pages of history, he is not a fan of Jesus. He's actually set himself as a Christian hunter. He believes Christianity is a cancer within Judaism and it needs to be eradicated. And so at the moment where Jesus makes contact with Paul, he's on his way to arrest Christians and again to try to disrupt and eventually destroy the Jesus movement. So what's fascinating is that when Paul, when Jesus makes contact with Paul, in a moment, Paul realizes that he's wrong. Because he's chasing down a movement whose core belief is that their founder, Jesus, had come back from the dead and had changed everything. Now Paul like many in the ancient world reason, that's absolutely impossible. But on the road to arrest Christians, Jesus comes, or Paul comes face to face with a resurrected Jesus. And so all of a sudden he realizes that everything has changed. God has done something new. And in that moment, Jesus looks at Paul and gives him this mission. He says to him, you, Paul, are to proclaim the gospel, the good news of what I've done to the Gentiles and to their kings. Gentiles is another way of saying all nations. The Jewish people thought of themselves as the Jews and the Gentiles were everybody else. And so Paul, Jesus says to Paul, you're to take this thing to the world. And so you fast forward a few years and Paul and a friend named Barnabas begin to travel and they begin to teach. And their habit was to visit synagogues, Jewish churches in these ancient cities. And because Paul had been a Pharisee, he was often invited to share And he always had the same talk. He basically would stand up in front of these Jewish people and he would say, hey, the Messiah has come. The promised one has come. God has sent the Savior. And I know you thought he was going to be a political revolutionary leader, but in fact, he came to free you from something way worse than the Roman Empire. He came to free you from sin. And God has sent him and he died on the cross and he rose from the grave. And everything has changed. It's a new Day. And this would have been an oxymoron to the Jews in these synagogues because a crucified Messiah, I mean, that was just absolutely unthinkable, but Paul wasn't done yet. He said, oh yeah, everything has changed. And this has all sorts of implications to the Old Testament law of Moses. You see, that chapter in human history has been brought to fulfillment in Jesus. And now it's a new day. And instead of rejoicing at the news of their freedom in Christ, the synagogue people threw him out. Because <laughs> they said... Uh, We are radically committed to Moses, and we're not sure what you're talking about. So Paul takes the message of Jesus to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And he begins to talk to them about the freedom in Christ and how God has invited the world to a restored relationship in Christ. And they begin to respond. The non-Jewish people begin to put their faith in Jesus. So Paul and Barnabas have clarity on what Jesus had in mind, but the Jerusalem church is still a bit confused, especially with regards to the Mosaic law. And so there's a wonderful story I want to explore with the rest of our time together, where Paul and Barnabas go to a city 300 miles north of Jerusalem, a city called Antioch, and they begin to talk about Jesus, and the Gentiles begin to respond, and they're talking about freedom. And back in Jerusalem, they hear, well, they don't believe Paul and Barnabas have told them the complete story. And so the Christians in Jerusalem send representatives to these cities with a message— Basically, they say, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you have to follow the Old Testament law given through Moses. Acts 15 records one of these cities for us. It goes like this. Uh, Certain people came down from Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, to Antioch and were teaching the brothers. So people who had placed their faith in Jesus, here's what they were saying, unless You are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses. You cannot be saved. And if you're here and you're like, you know, under the age of whatever and you don't know what circumcision is, just ask your parents later. Okay, that's how we're going to do that because we just don't have time for that today. Ha ha. Okay. So so the Jewish people under the Old Testament law had to be circumcised as children. It was a mark of their covenant. It was a mark of the Old Testament covenant. And so they reasoned that if you were going to place your faith in Jesus and Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, then you too needed to be circumcised. To which the Gentile men who would not have been circumcised had the following thought. Is this what was in the fine print? Because I scrolled and clicked and didn't really read it, right? Because people have been doing that for a long time. And there was a lot of anxiety. And they're saying, listen, if you want to be saved, you're going to have to have surgery. And so Moses is brought up and surgery is brought up. And what's happening here is that the Jewish Christians were arguing for a blended covenant model, Jesus and Moses, Well, as they're sharpening their blades to get down to business, Paul and Barnabas, I love that too, Paul and Barnabas show up, right? And and they have a little rumble. So here's what, uh, here's what Paul and Barnabas say. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. I bet it did. (laughs) So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem. Now, Antioch is 300 miles north of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is up in the mountains. So they would say, go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles. That's like the Jedi Council of the Christians, those first disciples of Jesus, and the elders about their question. And so Paul and Barnabas and a few other believers make the trip up to Jerusalem. And what happens is basically the first recorded church business meeting. Bible nerds like me call it the Jerusalem Council. And if you read it, you're kind of like, yeah, whatever, what's the big deal? But it is impossible to overstate the significance of what took place at that meeting. Fortunately for us, Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, recorded the minutes for us from that meeting. And there was only one item on the agenda. And here's the question they were chasing down. What is a Gentile Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law? Do they have to do some of it? Do they have to do none of it? How in the world are they supposed to think about the old now that the new has come? So then we meet our warring factions, as Luke's account continues. He says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, those were Paul's former people, stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And don't miss this. They mean the whole law of Moses. 613 commands. You say yes to Jesus and you have said yes to Moses. He tells us that the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. So the pro-Moses group, led by the converted Pharisees, is adamant. Uh, Gentile believers must be required to keep the whole law of Moses and the men must be circumcised. And then there was the Jesus-only group led by Paul and Barnabas, and they responded, and this is interesting, by stories. Because not only did Jesus tell Paul to take this news to the Gentiles, Not only did Paul understand that what Jesus did was a complete break from what came before it, uh, Paul realized that as he was telling these stories, he was getting the feedback, people who were not of Jewish descent were coming to faith in the Jewish Messiah. It it was like people were placing their faith in Jesus, and God was demonstrating his affirmation of their decision in visible ways. And, And so Paul begins to tell these stories that God was confirming his approval of Gentiles being part of the Jesus movement apart from the law. And and at this point, at this point, Peter, who was Jesus' oldest disciple, he was the most impulsive disciple, sort of a leader of the disciples, weighs in. He says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. He says, brothers, you know that some time ago, let's look at that next slide, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So Peter was tapped along with Paul as one of these messengers to the Gentiles, but Peter had stalled out in Jerusalem. Nonetheless, he had clarity about what God had in mind. And he continues, he says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us, he made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by, and what does he say? Faith. Not through observing the law, he purified their hearts by faith, but they haven't been circumcised yet. He purified their hearts by faith. And when, when Peter uses the words, God made no distinction between us and them, it would have sucked the air out of the room. This was a seismic shift in their thinking that proclaimed an unbelievable new reality. Peter declared that God had thrown open the doors of the Jesus movement to outsiders. And divine approval once reserved for the Jewish race was now available to everyone. And then as Peter continues to talk, he acknowledged something that every man in the room knew but didn't want to say. Here's what he says. He says, Now then, why do you try to test God By putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke, and that's a set of teachings, that neither we nor our forefathers have been able to bear. Like we've had these rules for generations, guys, and none of us, none of us have successfully followed all the rules. It hasn't worked well for us. Why in the world do you think it would work well for them? It's literally like it's inconceivable that we would ask them to step under the set of rules that we were raised in, under, and around and couldn't keep and ask them to reorient their entire lives around Old Testament directives that, again, were impossible for us to keep. I mean, for a Gentile to do that, it would be a total reorientation of life around the Jewish civil, moral, and religious codes outlined in the Old Testament. And so it had taken years after the resurrection for Peter to come to this moment. But he basically gets to a spot where he realizes that Jesus did not come to add to the old covenant. He came to bring a new covenant. At the Last Supper, when he says to his disciples, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, he wasn't speaking metaphorically. And they would know that the next day because he was hanging on the cross, bleeding to death. His new covenant was new, and you can't mix and match. So as Peter is returning to his seat, uh, James, Jesus' brother, stood up. And if you're on the outside looking in, and you're here just visiting, kicking the tires, welcome. Uh, you need to know that James is a fascinating character to consider if you're a skeptic, because James was the younger brother of Jesus. So he grew up with Jesus. He had seen Jesus all through his awkward years. And Jesus didn't have awkward years, but if he had, he would have seen him, right? And James comes to a place after the resurrection where he actually believes that his brother is the son of God and the savior of the world. And as we said before, what would it take for you to believe that your brother, your older brother, was the son of God and the savior of the world, right? You'd probably have to come back from the dead, which is what happened. And so James becomes a leader in the church. So James stands up And says this. He says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And as he continues, he gives us what might be the most helpful statement in the New Testament when it comes to a Christian's relationship to the Old Testament. And you could just feel the tension in the room because the entire Old Testament law and everything associated with it was at stake. So what does James say? Here's what he says. He says, instead, we should write to them. They're probably waiting, especially the guys, nervously waiting, right? Telling them four things. To abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Four things. Abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, The meat of strangled animals, and for blood. He goes on to say, For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And you're reading this and you're going, That doesn't make any sense. Like, what, James, what are you talking about? Why would you say Moses has been preached in every city? And what does it have to do with the four Old Testament ish commandments? Like, if Gentiles aren't required to be circumcised and if Gentiles don't have to keep the Old Testament law, why these four, right? And there's a couple, here's a a list of the four. The other challenge with this is there's a few that you want to suggest they might add, like don't murder, maybe. I don't know, right? Don't steal. Well, to begin with, these four commands had nothing to do with Gentiles keeping the Old Testament law. That was a settled issue. Jewish believers were free to keep doing what they had always done, but Gentiles weren't necessarily required to follow suit. These four instructions had nothing to do then with keeping the law and everything to do with keeping the peace between Jews and Gentiles in the church. James understood that Jewish believers would struggle with Gentiles unless some basic considerations were made. James was simply asking Gentile believers then to be sensitive to their fellow Jewish believers. If you're going to be in community together, you need to understand that one of the main emphases of the old covenant was the dietary restrictions. And so if you're going to be in community with them and build trust with them, there are some things that they just can't help themselves but freak out about. Like if you're eating food offered to idols, uh, you're eating the meat of strangled animals, or you're drinking blood, which is disgusting. and No one should do it, but right. But it's, but that was, he's like, you need to make those consolations for them for the sake of, of unity. That's three of the four. The fourth is sexual immorality. And I would argue that that is simply a good idea for everyone. And so here's what happened next. James gets done and they decide that he's right and they're going to write a letter. And so here's what Luke tells us. It says, the men were sent off and uh, went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the message. It says, the people read it and were glad, especially the guys, right? For its encouraging message. So that's what happened, but the decision by the Jerusalem Council is mind boggling in its implications. They decided that unity in the church was more important than the law of Moses because Jesus came to bring a new covenant. And in addition to laying the groundwork for unity between Jewish and Gentile believers, the council's letter formally signaled a break with the Jewish scriptures as the foundation for behavior for Christians. Up to this point in the history of the church, Jewish believers were taking their behavioral cues both from the teachings of Jesus and from the first century understanding of the law of Moses. And so the decision of the Jerusalem council was intended to change that at least for the Gentiles. Now, old habits die hard, and the struggle against blending covenants was one of the battles that we see Paul fighting over and over and over again to early Christians. In fact, if any of this has sparked your interest, your homework, and it's on your program, is to read the letter Paul wrote to Christians living in a Roman province called Galatia, It's called Galatians, and if you're not a reader, you can totally do this. It's four pages, so just absorb that, right? And there's no quiz. It'll be great, right? Um, But Paul writes this letter to the Galatian church primarily to counter the teaching that you had to become Jewish in order to embrace Jesus. Let me just show you one verse from Galatians where Paul kind of puts it all on the line. It's Galatians 5, chapter 3. He says, again, and I imagine as he's writing this, he's almost shaking. He's so passionate. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey, what does he say? The whole law. And you say, that doesn't even make sense, Paul. What what are you saying? I, I mean, because he's circumcised, now he has to obey the whole law. And he tells us, as he continues, he says, you who are trying to be justified, you're trying to be made right with God by the law, have been alienated from Christ. So as soon as you move away from your radical need for salvation, you start to think, I can earn this by good behavior. You're going to lose what Jesus came to do. You're going to lose the new covenant. You've stepped back under the old covenant. He says, you've been alienated from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. Paul's like, the gospel is a message of grace. The old covenant was given so that we would know that we weren't going to be good enough. Every time we tried, we failed. And he said, and I would know because I was a Pharisee. I was the best of the best and I was nowhere near perfect. I needed grace just like you need grace. And while there's nothing inherently wrong with circumcision, because at one point in one of his letters, Paul says circumcision or no circumcision has no value in Christ. It doesn't matter because we're all made one. It it doesn't matter. But he says, listen, if you circumcise yourself because you think by obeying the law, you're going to be justified with God, you're going to lose grace. You're going to lose the good news of what Jesus came to do. You're going to lose the freedom that he offers. In fact, Galatians 5 verse 1 begins with these words, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So why then are you going back and trying to re-yoke yourselves to a set of teachings that 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 no one could obey. So Paul really couldn't be any more clear. Jesus came to do something new. It was a new covenant, a new relationship between people and God made possible in his blood and through his blood. And a new covenant relationship that was activated through an individual's faith or trust or belief in what Jesus had accomplished on their behalf. Not the faith, belief, or trust in Jesus and following some of what came before. Friends, this was the good news that would eventually change the course of human history. And this to me is why a part of the answer to the question of what is the Bible is the observation, though not all of the Bible was written for you, or all the Bible was written for you, but not all of the Bible was written to you. Because God's promises to ancient Israel are not his promises to you. The author of the New Testament letter of Hebrews would tell you that yours are better promises. And you'll find them in the second half of your Bible. And it's where you and I should be looking if we're trying to find application for our faith in our life. Would you stand? I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the integrity with which the early church wrestled with these issues. We thank you for the blazing clarity offered to us by Jesus, whose blood pays for our sins and restores our relationship with you, that it is by grace we are saved through faith and not by works. We thank you that he came as a Jew under the law to save those under the law and to bring the law to its completion and to its fulfillment. I thank you for the freedom that we stand in because of Jesus. And I pray that wrestling down some of these issues would help us see with even more clarity how much you love us, how how much you reach out to us, that you desire relationship with us, that you invite us to, by faith, trust in the gift of your son on the cross to step into a new covenant that brings us eternal life. And so we thank you. We celebrate you. We bless you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week for part four of What is the Bible.